Hi, I'm Mike Dilk and you're listening to the Relax Back UK show. The show that explores all kinds of health topics relevant to you, your family and your friends. Each week I talk to expert guests from a range of backgrounds to inform and entertain you. So please do join the Relax Back UK family and stay tuned. Hi and thank you for joining me on the Relax Back UK show. My first guest today is Dr Vanessa Appear and she talks about something that's potentially really serious. You can be symptomless for decades, but if it's left untreated, then the virus can lead to life-threatening conditions like um, liver cancer or liver failure. Sounds bad, doesn't it? But actually, it's not all doom and gloom. The topic is hepatitis C, for which there is a simple test and simple treatment. Then more good news, this time from Dr. Claire Bromley of Cancer Research UK. Uh, The good news is that over one million lives have been saved from cancer since the 1980s. And I think this stat is just so powerful because it really just shows the incredible difference that medical research can make. She'll be explaining more about this and the work of CRUK. So please do join me for a great show. Thank you. I started my chat with Dr. Appiah uh, about hepatitis C with me trying to remember um, what I did when I took my children for vaccinations uh, when they were smaller. I seem to remember my children are 18 and 13 and I, in the dim distant past, I've got a memory of taking them to the GP to get a vaccination uh, when they were babies, but that was for hepatitis A. Um, Am I likely remembering that correctly? Yes, um, hepatitis A or hepatitis B. Right. So what's what? So we've got A, B, and C. What's the difference? It, 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 exactly. So we've got um, uh, d- all of them are um, viruses that can affect the liver, um, but this is um, we're talking more specifically about hepatitis C, which um, doesn't have um, a vaccine for it at the moment. So you you wouldn't traditionally take that as a a vaccine, but it does have highly effective treatment um, to um, eradicate the infection. Okay, all right. Now, the the whole thing seems to be that a lot of people might have it or have this virus lurking within them and and they don't even realise it. So, well, two questions, really. Mm-hmm. What's a lot? You know, is it really a lot of people? And and how could this possibly happen? Yeah. So um, again, really good question. So first of all, so I just to be clear about hepatitis C. So it's a bloodborne virus, and it means that it can be passed on through traces of blood. And the the key thing is is that sometimes it can be symptomless for a number of years. So you can be living with the infection and not be experience anything that could suggest that you have it. And in some cases, you can be symptomless for decades. But if it's left untreated, then the virus can lead to life threatening conditions like um, liver cancer or liver failure. And it, it is estimated that there are thousands of people in England who may have unknowingly acquired hepatitis C abroad through tattoos or piercings or, you know, they're increasingly popular dental, cosmetic or health procedures. And yeah, a lot of people are going abroad for um, plastic um, surgery, that kind of thing, aren't they? 
Exactly. And this can, and so this... Um, the BBL, what was that? The Brazilian butt lift? That's a yeah. current favourite, I think. <laughs> no, ex exactly. And so there are a whole host of procedures. And the, the thing is, is that if the equipment for the procedures is not sterilised or there aren't appropriate hygiene measures that are followed, then there is a possibility of hepatitis C being passed on. We're not saying it's for everyone who's gone away or had a tattoo or had a piercing, but it's something to consider. And, it, and in terms of the numbers, um, so we think there are about 70,000 people um, in the UK that are living with undiagnosed hepatitis C. And there are many um, different causes of, of how you can acquire hepatitis C. But when some research has been done, looking at those who have already been treated for hepatitis C and looking back and seeing, you know, how they think they acquired it and looking at that number and then looking at the number of people that are undiagnosed, um, an estimation has been made that there are thousands um, uh, that are um, living with um, hepatitis C that may have been acquired abroad through tattoos, piercings or procedures. I, I can see how if you get a, maybe a, a tattoo abroad, but what kind of one would hope if you're abroad and get a toothache and need a filling and have that horrible anaesthetic that the, the dentist gives you, which is horrible at the time, but it's probably much less horrible than the pain of going through having a filling without the anaesthetic. Yeah. You would hope like dentists, etc., plastic surgeons might sterilise their tools a bit more. Um, you would. And that is um, that it, that should be the standard protocol. But we do know that that may not be consistent. And so, again, as I, I said, it's not to deter anyone from traveling, from procedures, etc. It's just being number one. Actually, I think it's really important when people do um, have procedures in of any form to be, you know, inquire about sterilization, etc. But if someone has already had this for their peace of mind, we're encouraging people to test the hepatitis C. It's really quick and easy you can get a test um to be sent to your home do it at home you know it confidentially and then send it back for testing and yeah. to get your result I've, I've i've got lots of questions to ask you about the testing and what have you but oh, before please. we get on to that before yeah. we get on to that just supposing say 20 years ago in your youth you got a tattoo when you're on holiday mm -hmm. um and this virus is is, is in your blood mm-hmm what can make it suddenly switch on or or do its you know do, do its business and cause you liver problems because you might have been perfectly fine for 20 years mm -hmm. no and, and i think again um um really good question so there are some people that can acquire um an infection hepatitis c and actually um the body may clear it and there are some people that will go on to um keep hold of the virus um, and it stays and it becomes chronic, so longer lasting. And then it can act on the body and cause things such as liver failure or liver cancer. And, um, you know, as always, 
there's um, uh, research that's happening to explore, you know, the specific um, triggers and what and why some people do and some people don't. Um, and there's um, uh, testing to understand, you know, the type of um, hepatitis C someone has and whether that's um, relevant. But the, the key thing is, is that you you will not know um which per, which one you've fallen into and you and you can't predict that so the key thing to kind of break the chain of this is testing and getting diagnosed sure and say say it's been in with you've had it for five years or you've had it for 10 years or 20 years when you do get if you do get the liver problem Will it be worse if it's been if you kind of had it if it's been lurking for 20 years or been lurking for five years? Does it sort of slowly build up within you and then make itself known? Um, potentially, yes. So and the reason I just say and um, potentially because it's just the way that we think about it. So um, we in terms of um, having liver failure um, and um, the liver not working as well, the how long that lasts can vary from individual to individual and also um progressing on to potentially liver cancer so the longer the longer that someone um has chronic hepatitis c the more the more likely that there's a possibility that they may um move to liver cancer so yes in all of that the earlier that you diagnose and start treatment the better okay all right so there is a test let's get let's get on onto the test yeah um so, well, first of all, why should you get the test? Are, are, there, are there potential symptoms to look out for? And you might think, oh, hang on a moment, I need to get the test done. Or has anyone who's been abroad and, say, had one of these things like a tattoo or, a, or been to the dentist, should they go and get it? So uh, I, I think there are two groups of people. So as I've said, that there are many people that may not have um, any notable symptoms until the liver has been significantly damaged. And so um, in those cases, we say that if if what we're describing, the tattoos, the piercings, um, uh, the uh, interventions abroad, um, if that's relevant to you, we're just encouraging people to just think, OK, um, if I haven't, if you haven't had a test for hepatitis C for any other reason, to, we're encouraging people to go and have a test and access that. But also, um, the uh, when symptoms do occur, they can often be mistaken for other conditions, and um, symptoms can include um, flu-like symptoms, so you know, muscle ache, high temperature, um, which we, you know, I'm sure many people have, you know had last week you know and it, it isn't hepatitis c but it can oh, actually it my wife just mimic. said that because of covid <laughs> exactly so you know there's many things that it could be so it may not even be on someone's mind to test for it feeling tired all the time um loss of appetite a stomach ache um feeling or being sick um so the only way for certain to know if these are caused by hepatitis c is to get tested all right the next question is, how do you get tested? Great. So um, NHS England have been running a fantastic um, hepatitis C elimination programme, which has um, diagnosed already so many people with hepatitis C um, and exploring um, uh, people from that um, raising awareness about it, should I say. And 
thinking of people that may have injected drugs in the past or actively injecting drugs. Um, so other cohorts of people, people that have lived in certain parts of the world um, that, so a lot of awareness has been raised um, for those groups of people. And we are raising awareness for those in these groups in terms of the procedures and um, tattoos and piercings, etc. And there is um, a free confidential home home test that is now available um, that is um, provided. And you can go into the website, www.hepctest, all one word, .nhs.uk, www.hepctest.nhs.uk. And you can go on there, you put on your put in your details, the test kit will be sent to your home. It's in a really non, it's in a really generic pa packaging. So, you know, not suspicious for any reason. Um, you do the testing at home in the privacy of your own home or space. And then you um, put it back in the post, send it for testing, and then you can receive your results by text. So it's a really simple way of um, testing and kind of giving yourself peace of mind. Right. So, but it, it needs some of your blood. Indeed, it does. So, right. in terms so how, of how do you get um, that out, out uh, of you into the test? Yes. So, just to talk about that. So, the home testing kit involves, so it's a finger prick. And so, um, there's a little um, needle and um, it's a small blood sample, which then has to be dropped into a test tube. So, um, finger prick, small blood sample into a tube, and then that is tested back to the lab for analysis. And then you will be, if someone does receive a positive test result, they'll be contacted and then linked into treatment. All right. So, all right, let's 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 suppose you've, you've gone through this, you've done the test and it comes back positive. Yeah, you said, right, get on with the treatment. What, what does the treatment consist of? Great. So um, when, once someone um, uh, has been um, told that um, the test um, is reactive, they'll be linked into care. Um, and then um, they will see a hepatologist as someone that specialises um, in caring for people um, with um, uh, liver disease um, for the most appropriate treatment. And there is a course of medication um, that um, people um, will take over a number of weeks. Um, and um, this, the current medication can cure hepatitis C effectively. And really, we've come so far um, with hep C treatment. And so it really has limited or um, no side effects. So it's treatment um, for a um, couple of weeks. And we are working generally to curing the, um, the hepatitis C and getting rid of it um, completely. All right. So, so it's an antiviral medication that you take for a couple of weeks and there don't appear, doesn't appear to be much in the way of side effects. Yes. And so we call them just for, for people to know they're kind of directly acting antiviral tablets. And these are the safest and most effective medicines for treating hepatitis C. Right. And so then after a couple of weeks, do you take the test again? Uh, yes. So, yeah. So you're monitored through that um, in terms of assessing your liver function um, and assessing your response. And then the tablets uh, may be taken for eight to 12 weeks and then were tested after to see whether you have cleared the infection. All right. So I, I've got to say, this seems very simple. It almost seems like a no brainer to do the test. Have I missed something? No, you haven't. I think um, and I, I like your description. I, I think that the key thing here is that 
it's about raising awareness because people may not know um, that they're um, eligible or should consider testing um, once. And it's like many things. Um, we've got the resources and we've got the opportunities for people to test. Um, in this specific ca case, you can test at home. You just go on to a website um, and um, order this test. And so it is really simple. Um, but the key thing is people have to know that they need to consider it. And that's the big piece of work that um, uh, all organisations are doing to raise awareness. Right. So so that's that's what the NHS has to do. Um, mm -hmm. And presumably, actually looking at it from a sort of a, a purely business viewpoint, this is very sensible for the NHS because uh, providing a test and then providing two weeks of a, a course of treatment has got to be much cheaper than treating people for, for you know, really horrible liver disease. Completely. Um, and um, and it, it's like many things. Um, earlier intervention saves lives, improves quality of lives and also is the most cost effective way of managing um, disease. And the, but as ever, as I've said, it's that whole um, element of um, being able to find the right people. And so for example, in this testing campaign, it's a partnership between NHS England and um, Preventex. And so uh, Preventex is the um, um, laboratory company and they, they work in partnership with NHS England to, to offer this new testing service. And online testing is really to complement, you know, all the vital in-person testing that happens across the UK. And it's really important that we find the right people, give them as many opportunities to test and then identify new cases of undiagnosed hepatitis C so we can work towards eliminating it. Sure. No, that, all that is very good news. Um, let me ask a question which is probably wholly unfair, but I'll ask, I'll ask it anyway. I, I, don't, I don't suppose you, ha you have any data on sort of the difference in costs between doing some of these tests and and, and treating uh, with a, a short course of tablets against, you know, treating with someone who's got, you know, a really nasty liver disease? Um, so it, it, it's not a nasty question at all, actually. I think it's, again, another really good question. I don't have, I, I, I feel like I would be giving you um, numbers that probably won't do the do, do it justice. And uh, my... Um, uh, health economics um, colleagues would um, slap me down if I gave really um, unrealistic numbers. But I, I, I think um, what is fair to say and what you've um, alluded to and, and expanded on is that um, I, I do think it is very, very clear that the earlier that you um, test and treat, the more cost effective it is because that person has less um, comorbidities, other things to manage, uh, and all those other conditions to manage require treat um, investment and financing in healthcare. So if you can, if you can get, um, avoid yeah. all of those complications, it is inherently uh, more cost effective. And it's very similar to um, I work in um, HIV, um, so another bloodborne virus, um, and it's we our work is focused on earlier diagnosis and treatment, not only does that um, improve the outcomes for individuals, but it also is more cost effective. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think the earlier, the better for most things. Good. And, and if these individuals 
can continue to work, you know, they can make a contribution, they can pay taxes, you know, so it's a, a, a win, 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 really. Well, well, well it is in, in this, because the, the key thing is, it's all about um, living and quality of life and everyone being able to um, function, contribute and enjoy society. Um, yeah. And um, by intervening early, that's when you can make a difference. But um, yeah. no, more excellent. advanced disease, you know, it, 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 it is inherently more complex to manage. Yeah, no, I, I get it. Um, earlier, you mentioned something which I just want to ask you about. You said Prevent X. So that's 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 a company. What? I, how do they fit into it? So Preventex, um, um, which is the company that I'm, I'm one of the medical um, uh, directors of, is one of the largest providers of um, remote um, sexual health testing in the UK. And so and they have partnered with NHS England to bring um, remote um, hepatitis C testing um, to the UK, which is fantastic. And so um, it, it is a company that um, provides um uh laboratory diagnostics but also supports the dispatch of um the tests to individuals um work works to develop the online platform that people are um uh, recording um and accessing the testing so from the online portal to dispatching the test to the laboratory diagnosis, that is the role of Preventex. And they are working in conjunction with NHS England, as they do with a number of NHS trusts um, for the sexual health testing to provide remote testing so people can do it in the comfort of their homes. So do they develop these tests as well or, or just sort of send them out and deal with them? Oh, so they no, they um they perform the test, so they perform the analysis. Um, so they have the infrastructure and the machines to test the blood to check whether um there is antibodies to hepatitis they, C. They, they, yeah, they're not in the business of doing the research to invent the tests in the first place. No, no. But w what I will say is that um, being a part of this um, and working to you know to change public health outcomes. Um, the the work and the insight and the data that is all research and that is all um part of really shaping what is the right care for people so in that way they are definitely part of research but no they didn't develop the specific test as it were so preventex is a, is a company that a lot of this stuff is sort of if you like subbed out by the nhs uh, for them to take care of all this um, so, yes, but just to be really mindful of it and um, just to highlight, because I think it's a, a really good point, is that um, the key thing here is about taking a small drop of blood and being able to um, test that sample effectively um, to check for hepatitis C. And that um, laboratory infrastructure is what um, uh, Preventex provides. No, very good. All right. No, you, no, you've made that made made, made that uh, uh, very clear. Thank you. I, I'm don't worry. I'm I'm not uh, in a position because, frankly, I don't really know enough about it to go into a discussion about how oh, the NHS no. works and all this. Oh no, 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 no. I think it's really good though to um to discuss it and think about how different organisations collaborate in public health. That's good. what I love. <laughs> well, you've you've really answered all my questions. Um, perfectly and this is something which I hadn't heard of really knew, knew nothing about and, I, and I'm quite sure many of the listeners will be in the same situation so perhaps just to finish I could ask you to 
give the website again that gives more inf information about this if people are worried or think goodness you know i did have a toothache and i went to go and see the dentist 10 years ago in some foreign land um perhaps i need to find out a bit more about this or take the test um what's the website that they can uh, go to with all the information and the instructions on what to do Great. So the you can order a free, confidential, simple home testing kit and get more information by visiting www.hepsechtest.nhs.uk. So that's www.hepsechtest.nhs.uk. Excellent. Right. So, um, Dr. Apia, thank you very much indeed for chatting. I think that is probably very helpful for a lot of people. Dr. Claire Bromley is a Senior Information Manager at Cancer Research UK, uh, otherwise known as CRUK. And so my first question to her was, what does an Information Manager at CRUK do? Of course, that's a great question, isn't it? So what we do, like my team, we're involved in really like talking about all the incredible research that Cancer Research UK is doing. So we really have an understanding of, you know, what exciting advances have happened in cancer research to date? And what is the really cool research that Cancer Research UK is funding right now? And we, okay. you know, produce content about that. All right, excellent. Well, so then the topic is the great strides that have been made since the, the 1980s about, uh, you know, how many people actually survive cancer and all that kind of thing. So it sounds like I'm talking to exactly the right person. <laughs> no, fantastic. I'm really excited and to chat to you about this. Good. So you, you've come up with some news about um, mortality rates in cancer since the 1980s. And, it, it's, and it's some good news. So what, uh, what, what is the good news? Uh, the good news is that over one million lives have been saved from cancer since the 1980s. And I think this stat is just so powerful because it really just shows the incredible difference that medical research can make. Okay, and that's if success has been more in some cancers than other cancers. Is that right? Yeah, you've got that spot on. So while we've seen over the past 50 years, cancer survival has doubled. Unfortunately, this hasn't been the case across all cancers. And there are six types of cancers in our research strategy that are particularly hard to treat. So these include things like brain tumours and pancreatic cancer. Okay, all right. But the ones that have become, I was going to say easy to treat, that's probably not, not the right phrase, is it? But tend to have more success now uh, are, are what? I would imagine breast cancer might be one of them. Yeah, breast cancer, we've seen a huge difference. And also lung cancer as well in some ways. For breast cancer, there's been a couple of key shifts since the early 1980s. The first is the introduction of a national screening programme, which happened right. in 1988. And also we've had really exciting drug developments, which are targeting like specific changes that happen in breast cancer, such as, you know, Herceptin and Tamoxifen, which Cancer Research UK scientists were involved in. OK, all right. And the, 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 the other ones that have seen success, uh, there's stomach cancer is that right yeah so actually what we've seen is that the number of people with stomach cancer and also the number of deaths from stomach cancer have fallen substantially in recent decades and that's largely because a bacteria that causes infection known as uh, h pylori um 
you know, is no longer common. So one of those risk factors of disease has been reduced. Okay. And has that been reduced through luck or, you know, how come, how come that risk factor has gone down? So we know, know? Uh, so we know that for H. pylori, Helobacter pylori, that's a bacterium that causes things like stomach ulcers. And actually it's been research that showed that you know, it was that bacteria that was causing these stomach ulcers. And then that led to things like antibiotics being able to be used to treat that. Right. OK. All right. Now I, I got it. Um, I've got a question for you, which I don't know if it's unfair. I think it might be a bit of a nasty question, uh, but I'll, I'll ask it. I'll ask it anyway. So the 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 rates of of, of death and, and the, the rates of people being cured of cancer have have gone up uh, quite a lot certainly for some cancers but what about the actual numbers because my impression and this is just based on my impression this isn't based on any research is that more and more people are diagnosed with cancer than, than ever before so are the actual numbers going up or down as opposed to the, the, the rates yeah so what we've seen because of population growth and also an aging population so obviously aging is a key kind of risk factor, as it were, for cancer. Uh, the absolute numbers of deaths have continued to rise. However, that kind of rates of survival have really improved since the 1980s because of advances in prevention, diagnostics and treatment. Sure, sure. OK. Now, so we, we covered a little bit about what some of the success is attributable to, you know, why mm. the success is, is, is happening. And, um, and one of the things you said is, you know, just because of the advances in uh, the research that is, is going on here. Um, now, I must admit, I feel quite personally involved in this because my wife is a, is a cancer researcher. And uh, so I kind of live it vicariously. But I'm, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm keen to know if the future is continuing to look rosy. Yeah, I think so. What we're seeing to get to this kind of over one million lives saved from cancer, what we've seen is like incremental breakthroughs in cancer research. And I think as we continue to do discovery research, so that's research looking into you know, understanding what causes cancer, how does it develop, how does cancer evade treatments. As we build our understanding in this area, we're only going to see new preventions, diagnostics and treatments coming through the pipeline. And at Cancer Research UK, we support the whole of that cancer research pipeline, right from that initial drug discovery research, all the way into how you get those discoveries from the lab into the clinic. Okay. Um, in in the, uh, the press release that came out, I just, I did a little bit of homework before our, <laughs> our, our, our chat. And uh, it says that CIUK um, says strong political leadership is needed to, to keep, you know, this good work and these good results going in in the area of research and also in the NHS, because, you know, they're actually they're both under quite a lot of strain at the moment. So this strong political leadership, what do you want to see from that as far as the research side of things is concerned? So I think on the research side of things, it's absolutely essential that things like Horizons Europe are sorted so that you know, researchers across 
the UK could collaborate or work together with researchers across Europe and get the funding that they need for cancer research. And there also needs to be more investment from the government in that cancer research. Because what we need to maintain is the UK as being like this, you know, hotspot of like really great cancer research. But we really risk seeing a brain drain if, you know, there isn't the support for cancer researchers that's needed. So ha have you actually already seen, you know, a lack of people wanting to come to the UK to, well, to do their PhD and do their postdocs? And, you know, as they get more senior, um, good scientists, you know, going elsewhere. Yeah, and I think, like, anecdotally, it's some of the kind of stories that we're hearing from our researchers that you are starting to see that kind of it's getting harder to get talented young scientists to consider the UK uh, to do their cancer research. But I don't think, you know, we just need to act quickly to make sure things like Horizons Europe can then, you know, work again so that we have that kind of collaboration and strong research kind of continuing in the UK. Yeah, are things looking rosy for that? What, what's, what's, what's the latest? I've, I've lost track a little bit on the Horizon thing. So we're hoping to hear more on the autumn and we're really calling on the government and lobbying them to make sure that they really see this as a priority. OK, all right. Well, good luck with that. And uh, at the end, I'm going to ask you what everyone else can do. So if there's anything there that members of the public can do to help, um, we'll, we'll get an answer from you later. What, what about within um, within the NHS, you know, the, the, the strong political leadership that you're after uh, to keep things moving in the right direction? Um, within the NHS, what, what's required there? Yeah, I think there's a couple of like really key things to consider. The first thing is that it's really important to think about, you know, if we diagnose cancer earlier, treatment is more likely to be effective. So at Cancer Research UK, we've been campaigning for years to reduce cancer wait times, but, you know, cancer wait targets are being missed every month. And this is just completely unacceptable when actually a matter of weeks can you know, be long enough to, for the cancer to progress. And what we've seen recently is then, you know, the changes to waiting time targets in England. So that's meant, you know, that faster diagnosis standard being introduced. And instead of having nine cancer wait time targets, we now have three. You know, and this hopefully will give clearer expectations for patients, but it really doesn't addresses those kind of systemic challenges so we need that strong leadership to make sure that you know everyone has access to that cancer treatment and care and if I may I'll just quickly talk about the geographic variations as well because I think that's maybe mm -hmm. another important factor as well because I think you know across the UK you have patients waiting much longer for a diagnosis depending on where they're based and this again is just unacceptable because you know everyone wherever they live, should have access to, you know, that timely diagnosis and also high quality treatment. So, I mean, I, I know you're a scientist and we're talking about scientific things here, but anecdotally, uh, I've got some evidence, uh, and, and, you know, and it's good evidence. Mm. Uh, <laughs> a, a good friend of mine was recently diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. It happened pretty quickly. And then the treatment started to happen uh, pretty quickly as well after that so you know it's uh, uh, things do seem to be working 
um, currently, generally speaking, although I'm sure you can come across some stories where things haven't gone quite as well as they should have, should have done. But we're looking to the future here, really, aren't we? We want to keep things going uh, well and uh, efficiently. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's important that the government has that 10-year plan of how they'll tackle cancer. Okay. Now, we, we've spoken a bit about um, the strong political leadership that CRUK wants to do. And uh, you said you're, you're lobbying government to try and make this happen, both for research and for uh, within the NHS. Um, so that sounds like a, a very good uh, start to me. Um, I, actually, I must know, I didn't realise CRUK was kind of a lobbying uh, sort of organisation as well. Um, but what about the rest of us? What about Joe Public? What, what can we do to help the, the situation? I'm, I'm thinking things like uh, potentially um, if there's a, an opportunity or you get invited to go to a cancer screening, just go and <laughs> take, take advantage of the invitation because actually it could, it could save your life. Things like that. What, what, can, what can the rest of us do? Yeah, I definitely think with cancer screening, it's important that everyone makes that informed decision about whether or not to take up screening. So there are three different screening programmes available at the moment, and they're breast screening, cervical cancer screening and bowel cancer screening. So, you know, there are risks and benefits associated with all of these screening programmes. But we really urge everyone to like make a considered decision about whether to participate. Because, you know, these screening programmes really help detect cancer earlier, which, as I've said previously, is what, you know, helps make treatments more effective. I'd also sure. say that, you know, people should understand, you know, what's normal for them. So don't wait to get a screening invitation if you're noticing something unusual. Please do, you know, go and talk to your GP if you have any concerns. OK, again, I can add some anecdotal uh, information for you. Uh, a, a few months ago, I got a package through the post uh, and it was a test to check for, for bowel cancer. Um, I think it was so I, I'm I'm um, I'm 57. I think it was an age thing. This thing appeared. It was dead easy to do. I did the test. I put a bit of poo in the, the kind of little container, sent it off to the, the laboratory. I felt a bit sorry for the poor person that was opening all these letters. But anyway, uh, shortly I got the letter back saying, everything's fine, carry on. So, you know, and it was dead easy to do. So my thought was, well, why wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a lot of stigma around almost like this poo in the post test. But as you said, it is actually really simple and it's been kind of made easier by um, how the sampling is like collected now so definitely do consider taking up that bowel screening okay so that's what the public can do um well actually there's one other thing uh which um well a couple of other things which i'll, I'll touch on uh should we be getting the public to write to our mps you, you you said that you know we need strong political leadership should can we get involved yeah, exactly. So at Cancer Research UK, we actually have people who volunteer to be part of our campaigners and lobbying the government. So I'd suggest that anyone's interested in finding out more, if you head over to our website, cruk.org, you can find out more about how you can get involved in that campaigning element of our organisation. Really? OK, that sounds interesting. Very good. I like, I like that one. Uh, then, of course, if anyone feels they've got some spare cash you are a charity you do collect money um 
people can donate to the cause? Yes, definitely. So we've actually today released our new fundraising campaign, which is called Together We Are Beating Cancer. And what this really means is that you know, through research, we're getting more moments with the people we love. And there's so many different ways that people can support Cancer Research UK. All the progress that has been made to date in cancer research is only possible thanks to our incredible supporters. And people could you know, consider pledging to leave a gift in their will, donating to the charity, fundraising for us, or even volunteering or taking part in campaigning. Okay, What's, what sort of uh, roles are there when it comes to volunteering that people might be able to do? So there's loads of different things. Obviously, people could get involved in the CIEK shops or Cancer Research UK shops. They could also be involved in our events, such as Race for Life. But what I would do is just encourage anyone who is interested in volunteering for Cancer Research UK to, again, go to our website because all the different volunteering opportunities are on there and you might find one that works well for you. There's also okay, a lot right, of like patient involvement as well, which I should touch on too, is in people who have experience of cancer can, you know, be involved um, in kind of setting some of the direction of research or perhaps even sharing their story if they'd like to become a media volunteer. Okay, all right. That sounds like some excellent things that people can do. I've got one uh, final question, maybe. Uh, maybe it's final, unless I think of any more. Um, would you recommend any budding scientists in the UK to go ahead and um, start their career in cancer research? And if so, in cancer research in the UK? Yes, of course I would, but you have to say I'm a little biased. But I do think that there's a really great um, environment for cancer researchers in the UK. It's incredibly collaborative. But I think we also need to think beyond the UK, right? So researchers in the UK have lots of like global collaborations. And it's only by researchers working together to address these huge challenges that we have in cancer research that we're going to get to that future where everyone lives longer, better lives, free from the fear of cancer. Excellent. Well, that sounds like an excellent place to leave it. So please just uh, give us the uh, the website if people want to find out more, some of those opportunities you mentioned earlier to, to volunteer or help with lobbying or whatever it might be. Of course. So people can find out more by heading to cruk.org. Excellent. All right, Claire, look, thank you very much indeed for chatting. Thanks so much. That was a really interesting discussion. Thank you very much to my guests on this week's show. And they were Dr. Vanessa Appear talking about hepatitis C and Dr. Claire Bromley from the CR UK talking about the progress in treatment for cancers in the last few years. A big thank you to you for listening. I really do appreciate all listeners. And uh, if you're listening to the podcast version, please remember to like and um, tick the box where it will pop up again for you next week. All that kind of thing. And um, please do have a healthy week until next week. Thanks for listening to the Relax Back UK show. Join me, Mike Dilk, again next week for more fascinating interviews and chat. If you're listening to the podcast version, please subscribe, like and share it with your family and friends. And have a healthy week until next week.